Hello and welcome to another rousing edition of Trending Topics with BB. I am your humble host, Brooke Brown, hence the BB. We are back for another awesome episode with a returning guest. Uh, but before I introduce my guest, I want to remind you to log on to the official website at uh, trendingtopicswithbbpodcast.com. And I'm assuming you found this podcast in any other way, either by Googling or telling Alexa or Google Home to find it for you or play the episode. So I appreciate you. But I also want to remind you, uh, listeners out there, if you're new, old, or returning, and you haven't left a favorable rating or comment on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Podcasts, or anywhere that ratings can be found, whether you're listening to this on the many other podcasting platforms, I would appreciate a favorable rating. It helps the algorithm find this podcast, and I appreciate your support by doing that. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email the pod at ttwithbbpod at gmail.com. There, uh, I will answer any questions, comments, concerns, or any um, inquiries for being an upcoming guest, because in 2020, I'm looking for new guests, and maybe you're a listener that has all been too shy to reach out, but feel free to email uh, with inquiries. Also, uh, thanks again for telling your friends, family, and anybody about this podcast, and if you haven't, Please spread the word. Thank you. Uh, now I want to introduce my returning guest. Uh, he's a very well astute musician, composer, songwriter, as we have talked about in a previous episode. I'm talking about Nicholas Gunn. So without further ado, I give you my lovely chat with Nicholas Gunn. All right. So uh, thanks again for joining uh, my podcast. It's been a year or two. I don't even know. Um, since you were on last and I, and we talked about your previous album and music and journey into the uh, industry that we call the music. Uh, but uh, I wanted to have you back. Uh, we have since met in real life uh, at a conference. So that was yeah. cool. Yeah. Last year in Miami. And ironically now live in kind of the same part of the country now, which is weird how life changes. Yeah. But uh, I'm excited because uh, I am privileged uh, to have uh, been able to listen to your new album, and it's amazing. So let's go down and talk about Pacific Blue and just another great ambient addition to your repertoire and kind of go through your inspiration of this album because there's a uh, it's a full-length album, and it, they're all... Yeah. have some pretty deep meaning behind it. So let's yeah. dive in. Cool. Well, first, thanks. I'm glad you dig the record. That's important. Um, second, I mean, it's like, you know, all my music's a metaphor. I think you and I had that conversation before. Like um, when I when I write a piece of music, I try to step into nature to get inspired by what's around me. You know, it's 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 an interesting kind of observation because – yeah, I'm inspired by people, places, and events, but I'm super inspired by nature. And I have several records dedicated towards a national park, et cetera, et cetera. But in recent years, as I've been transitioning to electronic, I've sort of kind of broadened my horizons and started talking about life experience and overcoming odds and the journey, et cetera, et cetera. So with my last album, Riding the Thermals, you know, we talked about that. It's kind of a metaphor for the ups and downs of life. Well, Pacific Blue is really kind of like 
a metaphor for where I find myself in my, my life today, where I've ended up, so to speak. And literally all the tracks in order have purpose, they have meaning. And uh, the first track, Into the Vastness, was kind of like, yeah, I mean, I've been through some rough times in the last couple of years, some, some brutal times. And, you know, you, you find yourself in your head trying to make sense of life events, your own life events, and how they play a role in your life. Um, and I've sort of kind of gone through this whole epoch in my life, so to speak, and Pacific Blue is a series of tracks that basically explain how I've arrived where I find myself today, which, by the way, is a wonderful place. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty stoked about that. But um, Into the Vastness, as I mentioned, is about taking the leap, kind of jumping off, um, taking the risk in trusting yourself to go deep, exploring your dark sides, um, exploring what it means to suffer and how you can kind of resurface from that kind of suffering and how through that you can have self-awareness and more empathy and compassion for life, yourself, others, so forth. And I kind of moved through the record in, in that fashion. And it, it kind of ends up with a song called Out From The Deep, which basically talks about finding the light. Right. I kind of, when I listened to it, I was like, oh, this is some deep uh, stuff. So like you just mentioned, the, the metaphor of, of kind of what you've gone through now and when you were writing the music and composing the music, did you find that it was very therapeutic and cathartic to kind of let it out through the notes? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'll be frank with you. When I do my music, I don't feel like I'm wholly responsible. I feel like I'm channeling a universal flow of some sort. I know it sounds kind of esoteric and kind of ethereal to talk that way, but no, it's absolutely true. I, I, I'm, I'm actually, I feel like I'm channeling something because when I'm done with the piece and I let it go, I love listening to my own music, which is really strange. Um, so I don't feel like it's me. I don't feel like I'm the responsible party. I feel like it's a, it's sort of like a, um, a global consciousness kind of thing. I feel like I'm always tapped in. So when I'm always doing my music, I'm at my most self-aware state. So quite honestly, I like to be doing my music all the time. <laughs> but, but isn't that what it's supposed to be about, though? Like, Not for everyone, no. Well, yeah. Well, what I'm getting at is that you don't hear that very often. Within, well, right. with a lot of artists, they talk about how they get burnt out in their own music, which is why they switch different genres, which is why they switch sounds, which is why they get ghost producers. The whole list goes on. It's yeah. interesting to find somebody like yourself who's been in the industry for as long as you have talk about how you still love and have a passion for it. Yeah. It as is. opposed to the other way around where people are kind of find it as a job later on instead of the totally. original reason they yeah. don't. That's, that's a really interesting point. So I had this conversation with an individual who's very well known in the, in the music industry not too long ago about how he thought it was acceptable for large producers or artists to then start kind of 
being an overseer of their productions or their work and they have these machines going and and yeah it's okay if somebody else was kind of producing and writing the track underneath his name and i thought to myself what the, what the fuck is, what's going on i could never ever imagine in a million years assigning my music to somebody else and then putting my name on it i mean that whole concept right there is so incredibly unauthentic to me that i think you know Unfortunately, we've become such machines in the music industry when we find these big successes that we feel that the next step is, oh, well, you know, I've got to find a ghost producer and I've got to find a whole team to produce and write for me. That to me is one hell of a shallow existence. I can't, I can't imagine it. I can't identify with it. And I would never, ever go there personally myself because I get so much satisfaction from producing and composing my own music. It's incredibly therapeutic. Yeah. I've, I've struggled with that recently, as you well know, I'm like really into music and kind of hopefully will transition my career eventually, but I've had a hard time in talking to different people within the industry in the last few years who have ghost produced or have had people ghost produce for them and aren't justified with the fact that, well, I was able to pay the bills with it, which I get that, but on the other hand, then why don't you just put your own name on it? Like, I don't understand selling it to somebody who's gonna get the notoriety and maybe get gigs or concerts or whatever it may be based on that piece of music. And yet- It's a money exchange. It's a- it's Yeah. A, it's, it's a money exchange. It's strictly um, um, a survival or a, this is what I do. I'm a work for hire. These are the terms and conditions. I write music. I'm fine being completely invisible. Um, that's okay. I, I think that there are certain times when that becomes incredibly useful. I think that there's different levels of participation within the music industry. But to be an artist, the classic term of an artist, to be identified with artistry means that you're wholly involved with your work. I mean, can you imagine if Picasso was painting a picture, which he may have done, who knows, and I could be speaking out my you-know-what here, and all of a sudden assigns that painting to somebody else, and he just says, paint, paint that like I would paint it, and then put his name on it. I think that the art world in that regard would consider that a fraud. Right. A fraud, right? But in music, we do it every fucking day. Which I don't understand, because to me, music is an art form. So, yeah, well, that's how is. I see it. So I don't, I don't understand that kind of hypocrisy within it. Right. I, exactly. But maybe that's just my own understanding of the business that I've, you know, researched and intend to keep yeah. learning. Look, but I mean, I, I, I am a, I am a massive advocate for artistry and, and, you know, and we talked on my last interview about the dance music industry and how the rise of the term ghost producers really taken on a whole new meaning. Right. Because, because, you know, it's a younger, it's a younger set of producers that are coming on the scene and they've kind of taken that word ghost production to a whole nother level. And I've had kind of like little quarrels with people about what ghost production means and that now ghost producing is kind of like a sign to the dance industry more than any other industry. And it's kind of true because all the DJs are DJing and they're not producing. So what they do is they find somebody to produce and write a track, put their name on it and pay, pay a ghost producer to, to produce a track for them. So I think that there's models like that where 
if you're authentic about that, but if you go out there and pretend, oh, no, no, it's, it's me who produced the track. It's me. It's me who wrote the track. And I am also a DJ and I wear all the hats. We call that kind of like a golden unicorn. Then that's, that's amazing. The problem is, is the lack of transparency in all of it. And that's where artistry dies. That's when it completely dies. Right. Well, I think we talked about it the last time, but what about the the model that if you're a great producer, for instance, I, I always go back to this person, but like Avicii, he was a great producer, but didn't have any aspirations to be a DJ, but they made him be a DJ, which as we all know, tragically killed him. Yeah. So what, Terrible. how can the music industry delineate the producers from the DJs and the fact that there's a lot of kickback to DJs right now who want to get a living or want to like tour and get gigs, such as people that I've also talked to on this podcast and recent podcasts, but they're not getting booked because they don't produce. So there's yeah. this catch 22 of whether you're a DJ or producer or both. And yeah. it seems to be hindering quality on either side. Yeah. So, right. And I, I think that that's just stretching yourself too thin. I think there's one overseeing quality that will trump all of this. And that is being exceptionally talented or great at what you do. So there's a million producers and there's a million DJs and there's a million songwriters and there's a million lyricists that all exist within this realm of acceptability. But then there is the cream of the crop. The ones that rise to the top that have something insanely special. I think when you find those individuals within the music industry that are putting works out there that are so profound, so individualistic, they're so incredibly artistic that they just blow up. People must have the track. They must have it in their repertoire. They have to listen to it. It's on their, it's on their mobile devices. You know, they're, they're consuming it. I think that artist at that point in their career has to then choose very carefully about how much touring they're going to do, how much production they're going to do. It's called a well-managed career. Um, I think in the cases like Avicii, where you have management and expectations that completely overwork them to the benefit of others rather than the artist is where the fault happens. Then what do you suggest going forward in terms of artistry within the business? Because I guess I, I, that's I, probably I, why I've I I'm kind of in this catch twenty two of me actually pursuing it as much as I thought I would a year ago. Yeah. Um, I still do, but in a different yeah. capacity. So, yeah. where would you suggest being that you've been doing this for as long as you have? So I'm I'm an unusual case in the fact that I'm a composer, a songwriter, a producer. So my my main forte is to sit in the studio and create original works as much and as often as I can. The success of that then tells me what my availability is to tour and to play out live. I get tons of requests for playing out live. I turn them all down. You want to know why? Because I've set up enough work, proprietary work that I own publishing and master rights on. It's called rights management that I make a living. So I've got all these works churning away, passive income, right? So I'm not out there having to Jones for gigs to make a living because I've already kind of set that standard over a period of decades. So what I'm doing now in my career is that I'm picking and choosing how I want to move forward with my life performance. And I'm going to be doing my own show. 
I don't want to play other people's shows. I don't want to be that kind of performer. So it's just a matter of choice. But I'm unusual because I've had this opportunity to create a tremendous amount of work, a, a great body of work that gives me good passive income. I don't think I'm the example by how a new music career starts. And why do you think the 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 model changed in terms of it seems to me like that would be the way to do it to actually yeah. get paid for what you've created as opposed <laughs> sure. to rely on touring but it, even the most well-known acts that we see are like devastated with the fact that we're in this situation that we're in right yeah. now where there's no concerts or events being had even people that have been to like the rolling stones you know yeah. so what do you see why is is it because the money is made primarily through touring now as opposed to people and with the streaming yeah. aspect of music, people aren't paying for music like they used to? Yeah, so copyright law has definitely failed musicians. There's only been two modifications on copyright law in the one in 100 years. The last, the second of which only happened last year with the Modernization Music Act. And that was the first one since 1976. I think I said that. So bottom line is, is performance or getting paid for pre-recorded material or recorded works is, is really at an all-time low, but it's improving significantly. So I make my living over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of published works, of which I control almost 100% of my own publishing and most of my master rights. And, that's, and I'm still not making a massive living. I make a good living, but I do not make a big, big living, right? So when you look at that, how does a young artist make a living from just a few tracks? They don't, not in recorded music, because the, the, you know, the industry is not set up that way anymore. So the bottom line is they have to go out and tour. Um, and in touring is, you know, I mean, where do you find the time? This is kind of looping back to your original question, right? So if you're out touring all the time, how do you find the time to create original works? It is a slippery slope. Um, and I, I personally think that, and I've always, I've always said this, I think the brightest people I know that are young producers are really smart. They get involved in the music industry and they take second jobs that keep them really close to the music industry, such as working in a recording studio, working in the publishing arm of a label, or working with a major, working in some division of a record label. So they're constantly close to the music industry. They feel like they're still a part of the music industry and they're still working their career on the side. And I have all the compassion in the world today for young up and coming songwriters, producers, because it's never been harder to break in. Never been harder. Uh, because of the structure of how it all works. And now we can't go out and perform live because of, because of uh, the, the COVID virus. So um, it's tragic, devastating. So along those lines, are you, well, have you seen people within the industry that you may know during the last few weeks kind of change their model in terms of oh, maybe, God. maybe oh, yeah. really seriously stay in the studio, create some good music? Everyone I know, everyone that I know performs live is changing their entire models right now. But you know what's really interesting because of that is like I've seen an uptick. So when I look at my catalog and how it's performed over the last week, I've seen a 5 to 10% overall increase because everyone's at home. They're streaming music, you know. Um, all my friends that are performing live, they've, they're scrambling. 
they're desperately scrambling. Not only are they looking for relief with Naris's Music Cares or um, some of the PROs are releasing kind of music relief programs and also Netflix is dedicating $100 million towards artist relief. They're looking towards those programs to help them out, but they're also completely changing their model about how they're going to set up the future of their music career in the short term um, with the hopes that they can reset and get back to normal business. But, but then again, I don't know how any of that really fixes anything because you have to build an extensive body of work the way the music industry is set up right now to, to make a good passive income on royalties. And with the the act that you mentioned, and so so the reason I'm I'm kind of trying to dive deep because as you well know we've talked about offline that the I want to I figured out that like really my calling is to work in music supervision and to help artists right. and yeah. also people within Hollywood, you know, link up with good musicians and artists and that just feels like I should have come to this light bulb moment. 20 years ago, but it happened. (laughs) So knowing, and so one with my last questions about changing the model with basically what's going on with everybody not being able to tour right now. And also Hollywood being on a standstill, a production shut down three or four weeks ago, a lot of studios are shut down. Going forward, do you think that people will be more astute and understand that maybe they should care about the income that they would be able in their their publishing and their music rights yeah. going yes. forward. Yes. So not to interrupt, sorry. So a lot of a lot of young producers, especially with that there's there's a different structure with for example, dance labels that have set forth and it's called the option deal, where, you know, some of the larger labels that have a lot of penetration into the marketplace will will offer a deal and and it's it's track by track and it's if we if we reject it then you can take the track elsewhere if we accept it then it's out on the label but when you when you take that deal it's it's what's called a standardized deal it's there's no negotiating it's like signing the deal with verizon cell phone you know it's not like you're going to negotiate the terms very much you know it's it is what it is so and these standardized deals basically take the master rights 100 percent in perpetuity and they also take a good majority of your publishing and I'm sorry, but yeah, okay, that makes sense if you're in the fame game and you're looking to climb the ladder and take advantage of the label ops and playlists and the, the image and the bragging rights, but it doesn't make you any money. It does not make you any money. Those deals are notoriously horrible and they're very much so structured for the label, the label brand, and not particularly the artist. So when I was starting out in the 90s, I learned fast because the way the music industry was then that having master rights ownership and having a majority of publishing rights ownership was the way to make a living and to have sustainable income. And actually, I, I would digress. I actually had great mentors that taught me that. So um, one of those mentors was Harvey Cooper, who came out of 20th Century Fox Music, who came out of Curb Records. Um, he signed a lot of major acts, and that guy taught me exactly what to do. So, I guess my my confusion sometimes is when I see artists, and I know they have the capability 
of producing music really well. Perhaps maybe they did 10, 15 years ago, but because the structure has been, I got a tour, I got to do three, specifically in the dance music industry. Maybe I should change it to that because a lot of pop and stuff, they have months off, but um, specifically in the dance music, in trance music, you see DJs that we've talked about that just don't stop touring except for like now because everybody has, but my question. Yeah, I understand. I, I understand the addiction to being paid a hundred thousand dollars a gig, but at the end of the day, when your gigs, I was having this conversation because a lot of us in dance music have favorite DJs, have people we see multiple times a year. And specifically like, for instance, if Miami music week wasn't canceled as a perfect example of being able to see the same artists within a couple days of each other multiple times because everybody's mm-hmm. playing at each other's gigs. Yeah. You can, st- I've noticed, maybe I've noticed in the last couple of years, cause I've been in it that you, even these people that I really respect that do have done great jobs, they tend to just kind of phone it in and you kind of feel like every set's almost the same structure because yeah. they're relying on the people who come to their gigs to be inebriated in some way. But there's some of us that are sober and we remember what track and the orders they play it in. So were you? what I've noticed in the last few weeks with people going live online and doing DJs on Twitch or whatever, is that people are breaking out their vinyl records. They're breaking out stuff that, that you can tell they love to play that they never get to play in the current yeah. aspect. They're going, they're going deeper because they can. Yeah. Do you think that'll continue or do you think we'll go back to well, this is what's giving me my $100,000 paycheck. So, or yeah. the promoter is telling them what to play as opposed yeah, to what they want to play. Do you think that's well, going to change for the better? Um, you know, I, I can't, I'm not a touring artist. You know, I have Limelight, which does trans works. You know, I mean, I, I enjoy trance. I've always been a master trans fan. I will always keep producing trance. And I'd always have trans remixes from my original Nicholas Gun Ambient works. But it's not, as a producer, I find the genre very limiting. Only because there's only so much you can do. There's just only so much you can do. Because the, the support mechanisms, the touring, the promoters, the clubs, they all kind of fit within a cubicle. And I think that also speaks to the kind of sets and the experience you're having where there's a lot of repetition. I think, yeah, there's expectation from the club, there's expectation from the promoter. I think there's expectation from the label. And I think the artist also knows what works. I mean, there's great producers and, and DJs like John Digweed who can do a four hour set and read the crowd, right? And change his set on the fly. Those, exactly. guys, are like, those guys are like masters of their craft and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. But then there is the highly commercial pre-planned set that really deviates because it follows a course. It follows, they're promoting something that is very linear and very direct towards their cause that the label requests of them, the promoter requests of them, the venue requests of them. It's all kind of centered around a time and a place and for a reason. Um, so that's kind of like on the high commercial side of things, right? Like the, the guys that are really big have big singles coming out or big tracks that they've all known in the genre. And then you have those, just those cool DJs, man. Like I just mentioned, John Digweed. And guys like that that will just play for hours and hours and hours and change the set at the last second. Um, 
I think those guys will never change. Those guys will always pull out the vinyl and do different things. But I don't think you're going to see a change with with uh, the way it's been in your experience with that. Oh, that's a shame. Um... Well, because, well, because it, it serves a purpose. And you, you can't, you got to remember, you're a music aficionado. Most of these people in the audience, yeah, they like music. But a lot of them are there just to hit on other people. They're there for a singles experience. They're there for a multitude of reasons. Yes, there is a core group of avid music fans, especially highly centralized events like trance and, and so forth. But if you start getting a little broader, if you can start moving out a little bit into dance pop, a lot of them are there not just for the music. They're there for a more of an experience, right? They're not going to be so centered on, like you said, they're inebriated. Oh, he played the same track twice. I couldn't tell because they're not really in the moment, right? That's true. I mean, I've seen, I've been to shows <laughs> where yeah. the DJ played the same song three times. He was so fucked up. Yeah. And no yeah. one knew. No one knew, except for the five people in the front who were diehard fans. <laughs> That's true. I guess maybe, it, you know, from my own perspective. And yeah, it's it's funny because I had this at, this experience last year in Miami where I was at, Marcus Schultz opened to close and the people I was with were, you know, doing their thing. And, and then they turned to me and they're like, Oh, this track is so great. And I was like, yeah, he played this two hours ago. And they were like, how do you remember that? And I go, cause it was two hours ago. <laughs> like, it, yeah. Like, content. and I'm also not rolling like you are. So, <laughs> exactly. so that's kind of, maybe it's just my own issue with the fact that, you know, I care about the music to an extent where I love the artistry of DJing. And I think for, I'm not trying to downplay his, uh, you know, as you know, I'm a huge Marcus Schultz fan, but I don't, it's just weird how it, it seems to me that the industry is fine with the, well, we don't care if he's played the track or remixed of the track an hour earlier or specifically in festival situations where it's just, they got to fit like 20 tracks within an hour and you hear about 30 seconds of a track. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's just my own perspective and the fact that I actually care, but I just okay. was hoping there was a chance that maybe people would see the, during this time of, Oh, they'll appreciate the music more going back out. I think, I think that the whole DJ mechanism is a very interesting one. It's, it's, you, will, you will be aggrandized a DJ because they play the tracks that we love. Not just tracks that they produced, produced and wrote, but tracks that we also love that were our favorite tracks from other, other people, right? So we kind of aggrandize a DJ that way. They become, they become sort of like, you know, the, the person that's driving our soundtrack forward for our life that night. I mean, it's like, oh my God, he just played that song that I grew up to. Oh my God, I love this DJ. He's fucking amazing. You know, you can be sort of aggrandizing that way. But in reality, when you, when you look at just how that whole mechanism works, it's brilliant because they have to do very little. All they're doing is spinning pre-recorded music. I mean, yes, there is an art form to it. I appreciate the guys that can read the room, that can spin for a long time just choose different material on the fly. Those are the guys I love and appreciate. But let's be honest, when you look at bands like real musicians, they're memorizing 90 minutes worth of repertoire on multiple okay. instrumentation. Right. Or, I mean, this, or adding a song that maybe a cover that they've never played. Or... That's live performance. Yeah, that's I agree. Like, let's, let's just be fucking honest for a second. 
I love the DJ, but it's sort of laughable because the rest of the music industry kind of laughs at the whole concept of like, well, they're just up there playing pre-recorded music. They kind of are. Yeah. Let's not pretend it's anything else. I'll go out the limb and say that. When, no, I agree. Especially when I come from a, a classically trained background and having gone out with a 10-person band and having to rep, you know, remember 19 minutes worth of material and playing in multiple venues over a period of time, because I did used to tour way more than I did now, do now. That, that's, but, you know, as much as you think that, oh, my God, how does somebody do that? You'd be surprising that the dedication to that offers so much variability in the show. Every show is just a little bit different. Every show just has something special. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of live show is just a, I think that's where you're going. My point is, I think that's where you're going to get the most color online. So if people are going online with their shows, I think we're going to get a lot out of the musicians that, that really have an ax to play, a guitar, a piano, a band live singing, all that kind of stuff that goes into live performance, I think that's where we're going to get the most juice out of the experience. I think my personal opinion of it is the DJ is going to have a tough time going online if this continues. Yeah, I agree, because I've noticed this past week. It's fucking uh, boring. Yeah. I mean, I love Dave Dresden, but the fact that he's going on night 10 of Club Quarantine tonight, and it, I stopped tuning in six days ago mainly because i just know that he's going to be playing even if he's one night he's playing trance the next night he's playing progressive house or whatever genre it's it's stuff that i could go to spotify for like it's it's not yeah. anything that i right. haven't it's, seen him do right and, and look, there's that it's cool to see somebody there if they're talking if they're making it personal it's even better but, you know, I mean, great. Give us something of you, the artist, or whatever you want to call that person doing what they're doing at the time. But I'm not going to take the artistry out of art. This loops back to the very top of our conversation here is where is the artistry in all of this? The authenticity in creating music and art and music and lyrics and melody and performance you know, we can, we can continue to dumb it down as much as we want for certain experiences, such as the DJ experience or the pre-recorded experience or the light show or whatever. But the best experiences are the ones that really, you know, the, the ones that are going to succeed online, I guess you could say, are the ones that are going to give us the most variety. The ones, that, ones where we feel like we're really identifying with the audience, where we're like, holy shit, I'm, I'm actually learning more about this artist online because i can see their face and listen to them speak and they're doing this live set and i couldn't the live show because i was 20 rows back right i agree i mean um i think the other night i saw well there's many artists that are not in electronic music uh, dave matthews did a, an acoustic set the other night and they yeah. and he did it to raise money um and it was just cool. Just he just was in his living room with a guitar and a mic and singing some Dave Matthews Band yeah. stuff by himself, and it was like awesome because normally, yeah, he usually does tours with Tim Reynolds, his other um, guitarist. But it was just nice because he was just there with a guitar and a mic and singing yeah. his heart out for about an hour, 
And I know that there's some others scheduled to do the same thing coming up. Yeah. Um, so I agree that like majority of the artistry right now yeah. is going to prove the people that play instruments yeah, live. This is all a slippery slope, mind you. I had a friend who is a um, tech investor and he came to me. The first thing he asked me was, is how much do you think I should invest in musicians live right now playing live? He was ready to invest a shitload of money overnight into online platform to help major acts launch different aspects of their shows. I mean, obviously there's a multitude of platforms, including their own personal websites and so forth, but he was brainstorming, you know, and my, my answer to him, my quick answer to him was, is I think you're going to get the real dedicated fan bases tuning in. And it just depends on what those artists are willing to give their fans on that experience that's different from what they would in a live show, such as the real personal experience. Like when you saw Dave Matthews playing the guitar the other night, did you learn something more about him on that particular experience? Um, well, I've seen Dave Matthews' band. I'm a, I'm a fan many times, yeah. actually. I yeah. saw them last year. But I think what I liked about him doing it from his, his, you know, his living room is that it was more raw. It wasn't... He was just yeah. playing like he like gathered. I don't, I I tuned in late because I had my job, but I noticed that he was very like, well, I'm playing this yeah, because I feel like we need it right now and it'll help raise some money and it'll get the word out. And instead of like, okay, this is a tour and this is the set that we're playing and yeah. I'm expected to play for two hours or, you know, you, you have that expectation yeah. I think you get as an artist of like what people want. But in this case, I felt like he was a little bit more freeing. A, he was in an environment he was used to, which was his house. And B, he was just able to play what he wanted to play. Yeah. So I think it was actually really a good experience to watch that the other night because... Yeah, I think you're going to see artists like those that are really inventive um, make the most headway. And I actually think it's, it's going to give the consumer a lot of insight into what being in a live setting really actually truly means. Because I think we, you know, we become so used to certain mechanisms, going to shows, going to, you know, we, we forget that if you take all of that away, then, oh my gosh, we've kind of lost that requirement that us as human beings love, and that is social interaction. It's not just sitting in your living room, watching a band play. It's being in, in a social environment, watching that band being in a club with the lights, you know, doing what you do, watching the DJ play. But when you take away all that peripheral stuff, you're quickly reminded that, boy, oh boy, if we don't get back to what we really love here, these artists are going to have to be extraordinarily innovative to sustain online. Yeah. But my question is, is, is it innovation in terms of, visually simulating or is it going to be auditorily i think authenticity vulnerability sells big time people have trouble being vulnerable you know and i think artists need to be vulnerable and when you talk about why you wrote a song or why the song makes you feel this way or who you wrote that song for or etc etc give them insight into the music all of a sudden you've just opened up a, or peeled back another layer of the onion that gives somebody um, a tangible reason to, to identify with you further. I think personally. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I've seen a lot of live concerts that aren't electronic music too in my day, and I appreciate them just as much, if not more. But I also think it's because I do have a musician background in my myself. Yeah. I came from a performance background where I played instruments for many years, yeah. and I did the whole marching band thing for so long that like I think people. Yeah, I played yeah. saxophone forever, and um, I I appreciate kind of that side of things, and I miss it to a degree because I don't yeah. do it like I used to. So yeah. I do have an appreciation that maybe the average person doesn't, but I think hopefully we'll, at, when we come out of this, people will appreciate yeah. it all a little bit more and understand that just <laughs> that, something. yeah, instead of <laughs> entitled to like, my VIP treatment at a club or an event or yeah. a concert. Yeah. And it's more about the music yeah. and the experience. All right. Yeah, but I want to go, I know we kind of went on this tangent, but I kind of want to go back to your album real quick. Um, oh, yeah, that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of wanted to talk about the inspiration of, I know it's not out yet. And so whoever was going to listen to this episode, you're kind of getting a little inside scoop, but and if from what you ex you told me, I think yesterday or whatever, or in the past, you're about to release a music video for the single or the the album. Yes. Is it going to kind of resemble kind of the artwork, or is it? No, I'm going to be blown away by it. <laughs> so it's a people interest thing, you know. This and I is in the very the single is for and I featuring Alina Renee. And it's a song that I wrote, lyrically speaking, it's very broad in subject, deliberately so it can appeal to everyone's emotional state of being with relationships. But I actually have a 19-year-old daughter that from my first marriage that I was never given the opportunity to really have a good relationship with. Um, and it's been one of my greatest hurdles to conquer in life is is the trouble and the heartache associated with not being able to maintain or have a good relationship there. And this is kind of my apology song for not being there for her. And, oh. and so when it came time to do the music video you know, about my subject, and I thought, well, no, because this song speaks to everyone's suffering and so you'll see the video it's it's about people it's about life i'm excited then um <laughs> it's a tearjerker uh, yeah it's, it's a tearjerker i'm i'm that's, that's sure. what i'm like i'm excited but i know that's probably what's gonna happen um <laughs> so go like i like you did with writing the thermals your past album um, you had a series of, and we kind of touched on it a minute ago, of remixes that you did. Are you doing? Are you looking to do that again with this album? Or are you strictly kind of keeping it? Yes. Okay. Yes, I'm very, I'm very excited about what's happening there. So there will be remixes. Some have already been done. No names I can mention at this point because of their works in progress and so forth. But you'll be very surprised about how we're going to go about doing this one. Um, and I'm just excited about. Let's put it this way. Blue Dot has had a great year and a half since we started. Um, and as everyone knows who tuned into your last podcast, um, my my writing the thermals debuted on my, my own label, Blue Dot. And that 
set forth a series of successful releases that kind of made Blue Dot a real viable entity as a label. So moving into Pacific Blue and the release of And Die, the music video, we have a lot of support from Sony The Orchard. We have a lot of support from um, all kinds of people in the industry that want to see Blue Dot succeed. So I think you can see remixes that appear on Blue Dot, the label, our first transition into trance. That's exciting. It is. Um, and I, I mean, with the launch of Blue Dot in the last year, I've kind of watched it and and, and seen the success. Um, in terms of the label, are you like, are you strictly trying to keep it within the realm that, of genres that you work with? Or are you kind of branching yeah. out to other singer songwriters or other artists yeah. within the industry that are it, creating some great stuff? It's a great question. And you know, the evolution of a label has to rely solely on one thing, and that is artistry. Um, there, are, there are certain different mechanisms and different, well, that's my view of it anyway. I, I guess you could say that every record label has a different mission statement. And there's a lot of labels that are very genre specific and they tailor all their marketing and their image and the logos and their branding around that genre. So when I got into, when I started Blue Dot, I had the idea that I was going to focus strictly on artistry, meaning artists that were super unique, that were outside of the mold, that were looking for homes, but the music was extremely well produced, very well executed. And, you know, we found a couple of wonderful artists, Little Warrior being one of them. Um, so as we progressed and saw the success of Little Warrior and Riding the Thermals and Anna B. May and Chris Fossick and other artists we released last year, um, we're now kind of moving into this year with the idea we're not going to be genre defined. We're going to be defined only by great artistry. Um, that's kind of the mission statement. It's a broad sweep. It's a broad, broad look at it. But, and some people will say, you can't, you can't run a label like that. You can't focus on every genre because every genre has its promoters and its, and its uh, outlook and the way it does business and its resources. But we've somehow managed to bridge the gaps um, with what we did with writing the thermals and remixes um, in a way where we can successfully kind of go a little bit deeper into other genres, I think. Well, and why do you think people keep saying that labels have to do that? Because I personally like it. Yes, there are labels that, you know, have a certain sound, but what is wrong with kind of broadening the scope when it, it's different to an extent, not different, but more, I don't know. Emotional mechanisms. So when, when you're in a genre and you're doing an album and you're releasing an album, um, that's, let's say for example, ambient, um, I've got a network of promoters and, and, uh, marketing people that I've worked with for over 20 years that I know to hire, to work with. And, but if I was going to do pop, I know very few people. And if I did, it would be through, um, it would through, be through a second connection. And it's almost like setting up shop all over again. And, and it really does matter because promotional mechanisms, yes, you, they, they can be bought and paid for and hired and you can do all that. But like, for example, when I get added, when my, my Nicholas Gunn brand gets a track added to Sirius XM radio, it's not because necessarily they love that one song. It's that they got a long history of adding my tracks. 
So they, they trust the artist. They trust the repertoire. It's an easy ad for them. So there's lots of factors that go into what makes sense for a label when it promotes a genre. So if I step outside of the genre, I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking a big risk and saying, I need new promoters. I need new, I need the new connections at radio. I need new this, I need new that. And so all of a sudden it's, it's unknown territory. But on the other hand, why aren't people who maybe come from a different genre or promote for certain artists willing to step outside the box and trust that if this artist has, such as yourself, released so much music that has been well-received, why not they take that leap to sign a track or promote a record or anything so with them? Yeah, you just mentioned something very, very important. So I had a conversation with the guy the other day and he said, what makes a startup label successful? And why is it that some startup labels have trouble and other startup labels have have um, amazing success? Well, there's always one key ingredient that makes a startup label successful, and that's a flagship artist. An artist that has had a lot of success at some point in their career that has a great network behind them. Whether they experienced success at some point in their career in the past or currently or somewhere in between, the most important thing is what kind of reputation do they bring with them? And trust me, that goes all the way. So when you're talking about, well, why wouldn't you know, other people trust the artist that's on the label to experiment in other genres? Well, they would. And so that's why what makes Blue Dot so it's kind of more verifiable to be stepping outside of the boundaries is fortunately, I've been in the business for 25 years. I, I definitely got a lot of resources. Unfortunately, I have some connections that, are, that make it more available to me. Um, and it's, you know, you, you want to work with people you trust. I mean, let's be honest. If you've got 25 years of working with people or even somewhere close to that, you tend to keep going back to the same people and they refer you to other people. And, it, you know, it does. It builds character and it builds trust and it builds success. Just interesting to me in terms of, I guess the reason I brought this up is because um, we, we briefly talked about this offline, but another artist that's kind of transitioning into the more ambient side of music is very Corsten. And yeah. he blankly like a month or two ago, or I don't know how long ago, before he fully announced that he was releasing this album, had to put on all his social media and his website that Dear fans, I'm changing up my sound because this is what I want to do. Please bear with me. And there was a lot of like people that are like, oh, I don't know if I want to listen to his new stuff. And then, of course, there's the other people that were like, well, I'm excited for whatever he produces. Yeah. And I, so, I hadn't followed the story. So that's cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, because he he mentioned in a, in a recent interview that I that he it's music that he likes to listen to when he's not producing trance. And he's like, why not? produce stuff that I'm into when I do on a, as a side project that I'm into and not worry so much about what is expected of me, which is kind of a bold statement, but also I agree. Why can't artists themselves release stuff they like to produce and they think is good as opposed to yeah. what is expected or what they think the fans will like? It's just an yeah. interesting perspective on oh, yeah. changing maybe genres but i've also heard other 
artists talk about that struggle daily where they get so much criticism for changing specifically like an Armin switching Armin talks about this all the time about the fact that he's so pigeonholed to trance, but the fact that he's wants to do something else, he gets hated on every day for, um, it's just an interesting catch 22 within the business. Cause I would assume that's probably why a lot of people get burnt out, but what do you think would be a good remedy for that kind of mentality going forward? Don't you think that it's great? Like you said, you like the music you produce. So yeah. you, why you is gotta, it? You gotta be brave. You gotta have the guts. And the music is the driving force. You know, the fans, I, I get, I've been criticized at times, you know, even in, in my fan bases, you know, look, I've got two music careers myself. I got one that existed in the nineties when I sold millions of records and I had to reintroduce myself to the market, a digital music marketplace. And all the old fans from the nineties, some of them don't get what I'm doing now, but a majority of them do. And so you're always going to have those fans, but you've got to be braver than that. You've got to realize that the driving force that trumps all of that is artistry and your, your undying passion to create something beautiful, to move people. Um, I know that there's huge artists that have such equity on their career, you know, meaning like a certain style, like Armin, um, that when they do zig and zag, they get highly criticized, but the most beautiful thing about a diverse music career, if you pull off, if you pull off what you're doing well, um, such as if you've studied the direction you're going in as a producer, as a musician, and you pull it off properly, you, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. What, what the biggest misstep is, is when an artist decides that all of a sudden going to jump into something without studying or being um, being uh, very careful about the style, the approach, the quality, the artistry, and they just sort of jump off this cliff without looking, without doing the work. I think that that's where where the um, the slip ups happen, the big missteps. But if you do it properly, if you do it really well, you just become fucking great. You become prolific. Bottom line. I don't care if there's a few fans out there that don't like it. You simply become prolific. So in terms of mental health within the industry, because I, I know that has been brought up kind of with somebody, just in terms of the, a lot of, I guess, artists are reevaluating their touring verse producing time off situation within the music industry. So do you think that people are going to start to reevaluate why they got into the music industry in the first place in terms of being able to do that balance of what's expected of them versus what pays the bills, what versus what makes them happy in terms of what they create as an artist? Or do you yeah, think- I, I think it's bound to happen, right? I mean, change always offers up a palette of, you know, um, options. Some options are not very pleasant and other options you just have to take to make a living. Um, I think the touring artists that aren't good producers and musicians are going to learn how to be really good producers and musicians as fast as they can, especially if this keeps going. But um, uh, because I, I mean, I, it's, you know, this, this kind of goes back to the conversation is, is this going to be a sustainable live performance mechanism online? Is it going to sustain those 
um, folks that only toured being online, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. That's tragic to me, but I, I, I don't think so. Um, I think the hardcore fans are going to be there. Um, so yes, the focus will be towards recorded music and more time and effort's probably going to put there, especially if this drags out. Yeah, it's going to test a lot of people, bro. It's going to test a hell of a lot of people. So to kind of go back, I kind of want to reiterate, I'm not just trying to blow smoke, but I, I want people to pick up your album or stream it or add it, pre, pre-put it in their Spotify or whatever right now um, and check out the video when it comes out. You, you mentioned Blue Dot and you mentioned some of the exciting stuff coming out. Is there anything that you can kind of hint at for, you know, you as Nicholas Gunn and, and maybe Limelight coming up? Yeah, so, well, I, I can tell you that um, you'll see Limelight on Blue Dot. Blue, Dot's not, uh, Blue Dot is going to pull in Limelight. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in controlling all of my own works. Um, actually, this is, a, this is a great segue from the topic of controlling and owning your own material when, when you're able to provides better dividends during a climate like this. Um, and my reasoning for putting Limelight under Blue Dot rather than with Amada or Amsterdam Trance or any other label is not because I don't want to be on those labels. It's because I want to be able to control my destiny. I want to be able to have my own publishing. I want to be able to own my own masters. And I have the ability. I've got the support of, of Sony The Orchard. They've seen what I've done with the label. And, um, and I've got resources available to me that I think can be very beneficial. So that's one thing you can expect. You can also expect to see new artists on the label. You can also expect to see accelerated promotional and awareness of Pacific Blue because of my relationships and how things have gone. So I'm excited about some really cool opportunities we have, some marketing opportunities. Um, and some of these remixes I'm getting in are just incredible. They're astounding. So that's, that's exciting. So yeah. I guess... Before we wrap up, what do you suggest for somebody like myself or anybody who will listen to this who um, has just been struggling with, they're really passionate about production, but as you mentioned earlier, it's really hard to break into the business right now. Yeah. What, what do you suggest for somebody that maybe would like to submit a demo to your label or to any label within the industry? What I know, obviously, the first or second demo is not probably going to be the best, but right, right. and always being persistent is any in anything in life. But what do you suggest to to people right now with the state of the industry and maybe feeling discouraged that they can't break in, maybe like yeah. a friend has or somebody they look up to? Yeah, so I, I have kind of coined this frame that uh, uh, sort coined this um, uh, uh, basically a discussion around this idea, and that is in order to be excellent you have to observe it, you have to understand it. And I think I, I receive a lot of demos that are underproduced and not commercially ready. And that doesn't mean that they won't be available to be commercially ready or that artists won't achieve that kind of sound or success. So I think it's always important for an artist to submit no matter what, what they believe their best work is at that time and establish and get that relationship going. Because record labels, the A&R divisions are savvy. They get a lot of submissions. 
if they hear something in a poorly produced track or poorly written track, a spark of hope or some talent, they'll cling on to that and they'll keep listening. But, and I've listened to so much music over my life. We can tell, I can tell when somebody's not musically trained or doesn't have a special je ne sais quoi, so to speak, or a special element in their ideas that's going to move people. But I can be pretty quick to recognize those elements. But if there is something there in, in a submission, we want to establish relationships with those people. Because as time moves on, they get better. And then finally, we have material we can release. So obviously practice and just to keep keep with it would kind of help propel. But for those that maybe not don't have the research, like the resources, maybe um, maybe they haven't had a classical background, but they just know they love the music. Yeah. Other than obviously honing your craft in terms of whatever um, instrument you play or voice lessons and all of those one-on-one kind of aspects, mm-hmm. w- discouragement within the industry. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but what has been other than yourself, just loving what you produce and what you've done over the years is that really been your main motivator to keep going? Yeah, um, I, I think it's the way my music makes me feel. It's, it's what it does for my life, what, the, what it does for me personally, the healing aspects of what it does for me. With, without those experiences that I have, that frame of mind I'm in when I'm composing and writing, that makes me the person that I am, that makes me whole, makes me love life love people, love experiences, love nature. Um, it, that's, that's what makes me continue, makes me not stop. Um, am I unique? No, I don't think I am, but I am part of a group of people that really get off on that and really identify with that. I'm not saying that everyone does. Um, and maybe music isn't your calling because of that. But the one thing I can tell you is, is a gifted person musically usually shows signs of being gifted quite early. It doesn't have to be trained. It doesn't have to be, I went to the, you know, uh, school and I'm classically trained. It's just that that somehow their ear and their brain and their mind and who they are was able to make certain connections with music and make it come forth in a way that we all go, oh, wow, that was really cool. And it's, it's, a, it's such a variable of elements. It's not black and white. It's every shade of gray. So you've always got to keep your ears and your eyes open. There is no, I don't think there is any status quo of what to look for. It's just when you hear it, you know that somebody's got something special. And it can come from all walks of life. 